Many faculty are either the only or one of a few at their institution who teach a particular course, which can feel isolating, especially as we troubleshoot and experiment with our teaching. In this episode, we discuss an easy way to connect with faculty at other institutions to share disciplinary pedagogy. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Keane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer. Together, we run the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at the State University of New York at Oswego. Our guest today is Bill Goff, an associate teaching professor in economics at Penn State and a former colleague here at the State University of New York at Oswego. Bill is very well known in the profession for his resources for economists on the internet, which was one of the very first internet guides available for economists, and it's now hosted and sponsored by the American Economic Association. He is a member of the American Economic Association's Committee on Economic Education, the Secretary Treasurer for the Society of Computational Economics, an Associate Editor for Computational Economics, and the online section of the Journal of Economic Education, and he's also an editorial board member for Netonomics. You can also find Bill on many listservs devoted to teaching and learning. Welcome, Bill. Thanks, John. Thanks, Rebecca. Welcome back. Today's teas are... I'm drinking mango water with hint water, which I enjoy quite a bit. Does it give you all the hints of life? It does, yes. I have no more questions about life left. Excellent. And I am drinking ginger peach green tea. I have another cup of that special English breakfast. That's very special. Very good. Earlier today, I had green tea and hot chocolate after lunch. Oh, that sounds good. Yes. So we've invited you back today to talk about how you brought a large group of economists together from quite a few institutions this summer to discuss effective ways of teaching large introductory economics courses. I was one of those members and really appreciated that. Could you tell us a little bit about how this idea came about? Sure. Earlier in the summer, I was at a virtual meeting with Martha Olney, another economist, and she had a question about Zoom polling. And I happen to know the answer to that. And it dawned on me a lot of other people probably had questions about different aspects of teaching online, especially for large courses. I thought, why not invite people I know to get together? And off the idea went. And you had people there from Penn State, Cornell, Stanford, and a number of institutions. (laughs) Yes, UNC comes to mind as well. And this collaboration all happened with a Google Sheet? Yes. Tell us more. (laughs) (laughs) It seemed to make sense to be able to write things down. A listserv is not ideal for this sort of thing. And so dawned on me, maybe do a Google Sheet. And the first column was questions people might have. And I see this on myself, you know, maybe for good discussions, you start off with questions you have for yourself or others have. And then on the columns on the right, people's possible answers for those things. And about 20 different things are filled in. And we had a couple of Zoom meetings as well. So partly I'm thinking here that a lot of us have been teaching large classes for a long time. We have a lot of things that work mechanically well. You know how to pass things out, give exams, all these just mechanics of things. But for teaching online in the big course, it's kind of feeling our way. Most of them haven't really done that yet. And maybe someone has an answer A, someone else for B. Maybe get everyone together and share our joint knowledge. 
one of the things she shared with that to make it a little more useful was a set of instructions on how we could automatically get notifications so that it didn't just disappear into our Google Drive folders along with tens of thousands of other documents. Yes. And that was, I think, really effective. Yes. I did not realize you could do that, but there's, again, as John mentioned, you can turn on notifications in Google Sheets. Anytime someone changes it, you get something new. So, of course, anytime something new came on there, I checked very quickly to see what someone said and hopefully adding to the conversation overall. That made it so much more useful. Without that notification, I don't think it would have worked nearly as well as it did. I suspect you're right. Just-in-time information, huh? Yes, it was. <laughs> and we started this, I think it was around a month or so before the semester started, when people were starting to get kind of nervous about different things. And I think it helped people. They had answers to questions they didn't know they had in some cases. Like, oh, I hadn't thought about that. But then someone else at Stanford or Berkeley or UNC had an answer for them. Or at least you can understand the trade-offs better. Many of these things, there's not one great solution, but you can understand the pluses and minuses of different things you might try. And lots of people tried very different things in the spring semester after the shutdowns. And some people were trying some things over the summer. So there was also a lot of evidence from experimentation about what may work and what things didn't work in the ways that perhaps we might have expected it to work. So that aspect of it, I think, was really helpful. Just hearing from people who actually did the things that we were all thinking about as options. Yes, I probably should have had the question too. What did you try that you will not do again? Some of that came up, though, in the questions, and more of it came up in the Zoom meeting when someone said, I'm thinking about trying this. And then people would sometimes say, well, I did that, and in some ways it worked well, but here are some things you should think about. And that was, I think, pretty helpful. Yes. I sometimes joke you should never do anything the first time. I think we've all done home projects where, oh, this looks really easy, and you start doing it, and you realize why people get paid good money to do those things. This method sounds really similar to the idea that Derek Breff had shared for active learning during COVID-19 in a physical classroom and using a spreadsheet to collaborate. So this is an interesting twist on that same story, but for faculty to collaborate. So who knew spreadsheets could be so useful for collaboration? Yes. Well, another way you can do that just for in class is you can have Google, their presentation software, and blanking on the name. You can have different sheets for different groups in your class and they fill in part of a sheet rather than, say, one part of a spreadsheet. Just a variation on that, for sure. I saw someone use that this summer in a webinar given here, and it was really helpful. And it is rather funny, though, Rebecca, how we're not so different from our students in so many ways. Rebecca, are you using your laptop microphone or the mixer? It should be the mixer. Is the sound not good? Oh, it's not. Yeah. Is that better? Dramatically sure. better. Hi, <laughs> <I> bad. <laughs> yeah, it was sounding kind of thin. Yeah, what are you going to do? Since COVID-19 reporting, that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> Google Slides is a presentation software. And I've heard lots of people suggest that. And also some people have been just creating templates for documents and sharing it, replacing the share link at the end of the URL with the word copy. So that way students can take it and automatically copy it into their own drive. And that's a neat little trick as well. We were using a Google Jamboard today in my class as a way to collaborate because each team can have its own sheet as well. And that's a way to brainstorm. It has like sticky notes and drawing tools and things like that. It's interesting how a lot of these tools can be co-opted for our purposes in the classroom. Yes. 
One of the advantages of this approach, though, is in most institutions, there's one or two people teaching those large classes in economics. And while there are other people at our institutions teaching large classes, the disciplines and the way in which they teach them could be very different in terms of the type of content they're presenting or the types of pedagogies that are used in the discipline. So it was really helpful to hear from other people who were teaching the same courses, the same concepts with very similar types of instructional approaches, because you wouldn't tend to get that if you were talking to other colleagues who were also teaching large classes in, say, art or in chemistry, perhaps. Yes, indeed. It did strike me that we're used to doing Zoom now so much that we could easily bring people together who normally probably wouldn't have interacted very much. I expect many of those people that, you know, probably did not know of each other, at least did not interact with them. So it was fun, kind of impromptu meetup or what is it, a flash mob sort of thing almost. A lot of disciplines have experienced this a bit this summer, and that's one of the exciting things that has happened as a result of all of the extra work we all seem to have, is coming together and sharing resources and really collaborating across institutions in a way that maybe we haven't before. I know in my discipline in design, there were virtual conferences that brought people together that were free. There was Zoom meetings. There was other kinds of places. Our folks aren't always the first to turn to a spreadsheet, but we definitely found ways to come together in ways that we hadn't before. It is an opportunity in some ways, but I think we're being so busy just trying to get things done. We're not really adding to it that much. It would be nice to somehow keep these connections going at some point when things are more back to normal to improve teaching and keep this camaraderie going and connections. Yeah, the pandemic and the shutdowns forced everyone to consider new things and also forced people to get really nervous, which made people open to considering all sorts of things that they might have been somewhat reluctant to try in the past. So getting that interaction among people, I think, is good. And keeping that going would be really helpful because I'd like to hear more about how things work because quite a few people were talking about trying new things this semester. And it would be nice to hear how that worked as we move forward. Yes, we're actually starting a speaker series here at Penn State on that. One that I and a couple of colleagues of mine run here called Innovative Teaching at Penn State, we share across campus. Usually we talk about evidence-based teaching methods. And this year we're morphing it a bit to just what's working for you. For example, I'm working on doing Zoom breakout rooms in large classes, and that seems to be a non-trivial sort of thing set up. And I think I have it. I know I want to try it at least. We'll be trying it here both on Thursday and next week. As we go, I've been using them every class day. And one thing I discovered is I thought we were capped at 50 breakout rooms, but I found that 50 will not open, 49 will not open, 48 will not open, but 45 does. Each day I'm trying to get it a little bit higher because when 50 didn't work, I dropped it to 45. I'm not sure why. It will create the breakout rooms, but when you click on open, they don't open. So that was a surprise. And the breakout rooms are a bit larger than I'd like them to be because when you have 288 students, dividing them into 45 is still a fairly large room. I was hoping to be able to put in smaller groups, but it's been working pretty well and students have generally appreciated them. Well, it's good to hear. I have a little bit larger classes at 350. And so then you have breakout rooms of 50 or something of 11. And that's a small class in a way. So what I'm going to try to do is have two additional meetings at the same time. And then it turns out you can attend two Zoom meetings at once. So training students how to do that. So I've got one Zoom meeting for half class, another half class, each with the breakout rooms. So students have two Zoom sessions, one for breakout rooms, one for the regular class. Interesting. My fingers are crossed. And that way you could get half as many people yes. in each room. I, I could do about four people per room. And I think that might work fairly nicely because you have a dozen in the room. No one wants to talk. I mean, me included. But if you just have three or four people there, you could imagine they would be 
much more conversation, much like the three of us here at the moment. I think those hacks are the key that is making everything work for everyone. The sharing of those little tips and tricks is what's making interesting experimentation within our own disciplines, but in others too, by sharing these ideas across disciplines. For sure. And that's the idea of using these technologies mentioned earlier to spread these hacks around. So how are your classes going? Where are you in your semester? We're two weeks in, so this is the start of the third week. I think classes are going well. It's just pretty fatiguing on my end. One thing that's been surprising is how many chat messages I get. Students use that a lot. They're used to chat and so forth, but more than I am. And some classes I've had as many as 800 chat messages. And part of that is I'll just ask them, is the answer to this yes or no? And a bunch of yeses, a bunch of noes. And we'll do some discussion before class, you know, favorite songs or music or what you do over the weekend. But still, there's an awful lot of questions during class, some administrative, some just good questions. And it's always fun to say, we'll be doing that later. I'm always happy when someone or when I anticipate what your questions might be. But it does make it more draining. I'm juggling a whole lot of stuff. And I worry a bit about with the recordings. They see me pausing. They don't see the chat questions going by. So I wish when we had the recordings, the chat questions were synchronized with that so they could be part of the conversation. Because when I'm teaching class, someone has a question, I always repeat it. Because not everyone has a microphone. They can't hear me. I don't do that in chat too much. It's too brief in a way to do that. So I'm still learning how to do that. And I'll probably be doing a survey next week in class to ask students how the chat discussion is working for them. So that's been the major surprise in not quite sure how to deal with it. And teaching totally synchronously. I like the idea that the structure to students, your typical residential student, which we have here at Penn State, they didn't sign up for an online course on purpose as asynchronous. They don't have jobs or careers and so forth, like older students don't have children and so forth. And having class during class time struck me as appropriate for that demographic. I had an interesting experience with chat on my first day of class. I opened up the chat and students were very quickly sharing information about a big party that was being planned that evening, which didn't seem like an optimal thing to do in the middle of a pandemic. And they were also sharing their Snapchats and also using it as a dating network or something. I ended up having to shut it down, at least for a while. I've been using the video chat with keeping people muted and then letting them raise their hands. And that's been working pretty well because people are much less likely to take over the mic to say something about a party they're planning than they would be if they could just type it in chat because I was getting hundreds of those messages in the first few minutes of the class. And students were complaining, actually, that it was really distracting. We're lucky we have authentication turned on or we can turn authentication on and so everything comes under the student's actual name. And now and then I have some student teasing about something or a reference I'm not familiar with, which I always worry about. But in general, I've been very much above board and very on target. Yeah, unfortunately, we can't do that here because students have to apply to our computer services department in order to have their accounts activated so that we could do that authentication. Or at least I believe that's a requirement for it. So I had a lot of people who were coming in as iPhone or AB25 or something similar. Might also be just a good demonstration of how used to using these kinds of tools we are as professionals, but as beginning students, a real unfamiliarity of what's appropriate and what's not in a classroom space and how a chat works with a classroom space when you're not used to that kind of an environment. So many more like norm setting than maybe we've had to do in the past. (laughs) Yes, I think maybe doing a survey, what is appropriate behavior? in this new environment might be the thing if you do have these issues. I always have to do that when I'm teaching face-to-face. I'm not sure how to use the word, but it certainly helps that many students say they don't want other people talking. 
So when someone's talking, I could say, look, people in here don't want to hear you. And I did do such a survey and have shared the results back to students because it was useful to be able to share with them the notion that when they're putting in irrelevant comments in chat, that was something that annoyed about 90% of their classmates. I have some persistent teams this semester, and I did something very similar with rule setting and norm setting for the digital tools we'll be using within their teams. And they wrote up their rules and all signed it by typing their name in Google Docs so I could see who signed it. Are you using those teams in Zoom as well? Yeah, because we can't fully authenticate. So it's a little tricky because if they're not authenticated, they can't be persistent from time to time. But I now have the teams fairly well memorized and my classes are a bit smaller than both of yours. So I can set them up. But we do have one situation where it's about 45 students and I'm getting pretty fast at getting them all in the rooms. You haven't tried loading in a CSV file? Well, it is all logged in. So if they were to authenticate their account, then they will automatically go in a room, but about half of them aren't. Yeah, that would be really nice if we had authentication set up and if students automatically had their accounts activated, but unfortunately we don't. I was hoping to be able to have persistent breakout rooms, the same students working in breakout rooms, working in discussion forums, and working in some of the other components of the course, but I haven't been able to set that up in any reasonable way given the class size. I would mention another challenge I've faced is that I don't get midterms. I give a series of quizzes with exam caliber questions every two weeks. And I used to give those in class. And dawned on me now I can do those in the evening. There is a history of night exams here at Penn State. So that's a doable thing. But the challenge is I have students all around the world, as many of us do. And the time zone issue, you know, for a student in Nigeria or in Greece or in France and Saudi Arabia and the Emirates and so forth, and finding a given time to set that in and to make it fairly easy for me to set that up. I don't want to have an individual time for 50 students or something. So finding a common time across time zones, there's a very nice website I found that would show you for time here, it's this time here, that time there, and that time there. So I could try to find common time across all these different time zones for those remote students. And that would be challenging. I have some students that in China, it's not a 12 hour difference, but in India, when I'm teaching, it's 3 or 4 a.m. That's just really hard. I mean, they are night owls to some degree, but that's pushing it a bit. Yeah. I've also replaced a midterm and a final with exams every other week, but I just set mine to be open for a little over 48 hours. This is the first one that just started, and I'm going to plan to do that for the rest of it. But I did put in a timer and I'm preventing backtracking just to deal with all the issues with Chegg and all the other things. I really felt bad having to do this, but I've warned them, and it's in the syllabus, that if they post any of these questions on any of the academic dishonesty sites, they will fail the class. And it's just such a negative tone, but the problem is so pervasive. I didn't really see much choice about it. That's a real challenge for us today, for sure. I'm only giving about a two-hour window, two-and-a-half-hour window to take these quizzes, so it had to be more carefully thought out for different time zones. Some students it's later, but most take it at the initial meeting but it is a problem. I mean, I did see on one list, or someone checked how long it took something to appear on course two or a check. It was about eight hours. I would think in many cases, it could be much less than that. In the spring, when I was giving an econometrics exam, the first question showed up within 20 minutes of the time when it opened, and all of them were there within three hours of the time the exam opened. It doesn't take long. I get frustrated too, where the president checked He's been doing a lot of public talks about the future of higher education, and they're kind of a leech. <laughs> and every instructor I know is violently opposed to Chegg, and here he is talking about what we should be doing. It's very, very frustrating. I actually purchased my textbook on Chegg, which is legitimate, and when you're checking out, there's an option there to buy an answer key for the entire book. And really, 
Yeah. When Shag was just renting textbooks to students, it was a very useful service. When it moved into a full-featured, we'll take your course for you and answer all your exam questions, it became quite a bit less so. Yes. I think it's interesting, too, like the stories that both of you are sharing not just with Chegg, but like some of these other things are demonstrating what we need to demand of our tools that we're using for education. And so it'll be interesting how much these tools respond to what faculty discover that they need when they're actually trying to teach in these ways and see if the tools actually keep up with our needs. I certainly agree. And I think the academic integrity is a real challenge. We have you know lockdown browsers and exam and things like that, but they don't seem to work all that well, or there's still ways around them. It's a challenge. And certainly I've changed the sort of questions I ask somewhat. I'm still learning how to do that well. I ask higher level questions that just can't be Googled or searched, but that's still a bit of a work in progress. Yeah, I've been doing the same, but I'm writing questions that make it really easy to find by using specific names or unusual names in the examples for the problems. So it's really easy to find the questions that I wrote in Chegg or the other places out there. And to be fair, Chegg is really good about sending back information on who submitted the questions, what time, as well as their email address and so forth. Yes, I do remember there was a discussion, there was a, a subreddit for Penn State students. I'm sure there's one for every campus. And one student became aware of that and he did not realize that that could be done. And you could tell that student was exceedingly nervous that his contributions could be tracked. What are the plans for the spring semester? We're doing this semester's teaching methods next semester too. We are planning to as well. They're just starting to solicit what types of teaching methods we're going to be using. And they're the same set that people are using now. It's just been a challenging semester for all of us, I think. So hopefully some repetition will make all this a little bit easier. I hope so. And a nice thing about it is I think many of us are trying new tools that we'll probably continue to use later. One of the things I've started using this semester is PlayPosit, and my students have responded extremely positive to having videos with questions embedded in them. So I think I'll probably continue to use that after the semester ends. The videos I used to use, many of them were created about 25 or more years ago. And the audio and video quality was not so great back then. Some of them were created on old CGA computer resolutions, so the curves are kind of blocky. So it's nice to have better tools to do that. And they were due for an update. For sure. Perhaps with that time frame, yes. <laughs> Microeconomics has not changed that much in terms of the basic diagrams and so forth. So the examples obviously have changed quite a bit, but some of those old ones I were using up through last fall. Yeah. I guess just the last thing I would do would be to encourage other groups and other disciplines to think about using these tools to connect with their peers at other institutions and share, because many of us don't have someone who does very close to what you do, but there is probably someone at other institutions who do, and we now have tools to connect up. Maybe they're not the best possible tools, and like Rebecca says, they'll get better for students and for us, but you know, it's kind of the world here for collaboration, you know, quick, papa, up sort of collaborations now. And it's no more difficult to collaborate with people anywhere in the world than it is to collaborate with people in our own departments when many of us are working from home over Zoom anyway. Especially when people are now working at the beach like John is. I really like this background. <laughs> it's actually easier for me to collaborate with people in other departments because the one person in my department that teaches things most similar to me, we teach at opposite times. So we can't like ever sync up and do something in a synchronous way. <laughs> So it's actually easier now to collaborate with just about anybody else. <laughs> yes, I agree. And then, you know, John was talking about tools and use in the future. Another one would be some sort of chat thing in class. So I get far more questions and commentary there than I do in person class. 
people don't want to raise their hand in front of 300 people. And I certainly wouldn't either, but they're happy to go on their device and ask good questions. So how do we keep that, but keep it devoted to course topics, not have them doing all the other distracting things on their devices? That'll be a challenge. And have pretty links and images and things that you can share easily in the chat instead of just text. That's my request. Which is more important perhaps in art than it is in economics. Although if they could share graphs and images, that could be useful. Oh, that's right. That could be the thing. I did get Zoom bought in the spring, so I was become somewhat sensitive to all this. I'm glad we have authentication as a possibility. And the person's mentioning me by name, so that was somewhat irritating. So it was someone who was somehow connected to your past or present class, probably. And the police investigated last time I heard no connection was made. We had cases of that a couple of years ago with our workshops, but there haven't really been any major cases on campus that I'm aware of. So we always wrap up by asking, what's next? What's next? I think maybe is pacing myself over this semester. So it becomes very doable. A lot of people complain about workload and certainly for me as well. So I think that'll be a major one. Another one, thinking about how to use these tools in a little bit better way. Rebecca, you're talking about how the hacks we can use to use these tools in a good way. So I think those are the major things for me at the moment. Just kind of getting a place that's doable, um, that's sustainable will be a pretty good place to be. Cheers to pacing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been a challenge. Everyone I talk to just feels exhausted all the time and pretty much have felt that way since March. I thought week two was midterms. I don't know. I was confused. Yeah, I do use technology to help me keep track of the weeks. In my Google calendar, I have week one, week two, week three, and that's the only reason I know. <laughs> the days are blending together. They are, yes. And one thing I do worry a bit about is the days blending together is missing class getting the day of the week wrong or time wrong or something because I just come downstairs and, you know, sit at this chair and there's not quite the routine you normally have. And that's a bit of a challenge. And we have rising cases here in State College and that's a concern. And it's not clear if students will be sent home if, or if they would go home if with rise in cases here. So that's an issue. Caseloads are still pretty low among students here. I gather we're at 21 today. I'm hoping it stays there, but people in that age group are not always the best at self-regulating their behavior. And I understand that. I did see some good news from Vanderbilt today from Derek Bruff that Rebecca mentioned earlier. Their number of cases actually went down among students at Vanderbilt. Excellent. That's great. So it is possible, yes. Well, let's hope it happens in many places. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you, Bill. It's great talking to you. Well, it was great to find John and Rebecca. Yeah, thanks for your tips. I think hopefully we'll all find more collaborators soon. Very good. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on teaforteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer.